This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, I spoke with author and researcher Nick McClellan on his new book, Grappling with the Bomb, Britain's Pacific H-Bomb Tests. Well, I'm Gillian Triggs, and you're listening to Amy Mullins on Uncommon Sense. And you are tuned to 3RRR-FM. As Gillian said, this is Uncommon Sense. And I have with me now in the studio Nick McClellan, who is a correspondent uh, with Ireland's Business Magazine, um, and he's also a researcher and has written a book um, which is called, and let me get the full title, Grappling with the Bomb, Britain's Pacific H-Bomb Tests, which was out through ANU Press, and you can read it online. Uh, You can also buy it in print. And Nick has also written an article which is very easily accessible to you all and uh, fairly quick to read if you want to get a good understanding of what we're talking about, um, which is called The Commonwealth's Secret Bomb, and it's up on the Inside Story website. So I have with me now Nick... Hi, Nick. Good morning, Amy. Morning. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And it's really great to be able to talk with you about this because these are tests which are probably a bit lesser known than the US nuclear tests that were done, particularly around the Marshall Islands. They've had a great deal more exposure. I think people know the name of Bikini Atoll uh, Mm -hmm. in the Marshall Islands or even Mururoa Atoll in French Polynesia, where the United States and France conducted their nuclear tests. Many Australians obviously know about Maralinga. The British did 12 atomic tests in Australia, starting in 1952 uh, till 1957, at uh, three sites, at the Montebello Islands, off West Australia, at Emu Field and then at Maralinga. But very few people know about the tests at Christmas and Maldon Island, Um, after the British developed the atomic weapons in Australia, they wanted the H-bomb, the hydrogen bomb, much more powerful thermonuclear weapons. And um, so the book I've written is based on a number of years of research and interviews with people trying to gather a story that's largely disappeared from history. It has. It's called Operation Grapple and uh, it was in the 1950s, the latter 1950s, wasn't it? And it had a range of um, tests conducted within that time frame. Can you um, give us a a bit of an understanding of um, what this operation involved and where exactly it was? Because I guess the the British relationship to these islands is a bit different nowadays, given that um, we were in the height of, uh, or probably the end of colonisation around that time and now we're into an era where um, these islanders, uh, many of the islands are independent nations. You're right. At the time, Britain was a colonial power in the Pacific, um, was colonial power in Fiji, for example, up until 1970, um, in many other places across the region, including what were called the British Gilbert and Ellis Islands. These are a number of island chains spread across the central Pacific near the equator, Um, And today, uh, the Gilbert and Ellis Islands are two nations, Tuvalu, um, a country of about 10,000 people, which were the Ellis Islands, Mm. and Kiribati spread across an area as wide as Australia in the central Pacific. And um, the two uh, test locations, Malden Island and Christmas Island, are both today part of the nation of Kiribati. But in those days, it was a British colony. And Britain, after the Second World War, was looking for vast empty spaces to test their nuclear weapons. 
um, and that's why the deserts of Australia, the islands of the Central Pacific were chosen as sites. Of course, we know that these weren't empty sites, that they were um, inhabited by Indigenous communities and also um, thousands of servicemen and some women came to Australia and to Kiribati for this testing program. Um, and so, you know, the link between colonialism and nuclear testing is true for the Americans, the British, the French, right through this period. Indeed, over 50 years, starting in 1946, the Western powers tested over 300 nuclear weapons in the Pacific, both in the atmosphere and underground. And that's left a legacy of health problems, environmental problems that exist to this day. Exactly. And let's talk about the leadership of Britain and how the decision was made that they were going to um, conduct these tests and particularly to expand their program because they were wanting to ensure after the Second World War that they were still able to protect themselves, that they weren't reliant upon um, the US for support. And also we knew that um, the Soviets were testing their own um, bombs at the time. So there was this kind of pressure, I guess, for Britain to enter the race and to make sure that they were competitive. And Churchill, Winston Churchill, one of those figures that we certainly um, revere in a way for his you know, efforts in World War Two to defeat Hitler and the Nazis, um, was really behind this program, wasn't he? Very much so. It began, though, with with the Labor government, um, Prime Minister Clement Attlee, after the war. The Americans in 1946, having dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, banned the transfer of nuclear technology, even to allies. So the United Kingdom decided that they'd begin their own nuclear program. They began developing atomic weapons. But Churchill in 1954 was really inspired by what was called the Bravo Test, Mm -hmm. The Americans, having developed atomic weapons themselves, wanted more powerful thermonuclear weapons or hydrogen bombs. Mm. These are massive weapons. The bomb dropped on Hiroshima was about 15,000 kilotons, the equivalent of... uh, 15 kilotons, uh, that's the 15,000 tonnes of TNT equivalent. But the Bravo test, 1st of March 1954, was a million tonnes of TNT equivalent, a megaton. And Churchill saw the American test. It was a massive impact on him politically and decided that Britain too needed to develop these more powerful thermonuclear weapons. Britain had lost a lot of uh, economic power during the Second World War. Its empire was crumbling. Um, The independence of India, of Palestine, uh, um, uh, rebellion in Cyprus, Malaya, all over the British Empire. And so having nuclear weapons would keep it on the high table of international affairs. Because of extensive American and Russian testing, there was also pressure for what was called a partial test ban treaty to ban the testing of weapons in the atmosphere. So Britain was in a rush to test these nuclear weapons, these more powerful hydrogen bombs, um, and uh, so they decided that um, having been refused the right to test in Australia and New Zealand these powerful weapons, they used their own colony in the Central Pacific, and that's where... uh, Um, A further nine H-bomb tests were conducted um, on Malden Island and then later on Christmas Island. Mm. And I found it really interesting when you were talking or writing about um, the US uh, tests of their first um, hydrogen bombs and you were looking at, I mean, how they were literally picked up by planes and transported across to the Marshall Islands. You were really kind of um, making us really understand the size and scale of such an operation 
and how they've perhaps, um, I guess, advanced over time as well. They're not necessarily the same size as they once were. Um, But you say that the Mike bomb that was dropped by the US in Operation Ivy um, was a clumsy beast, larger than a house, weighing 65 tonnes and requiring refrigeration to keep the hydrogen fuel liquid until detonation. Um, But it vaporised the coral islet of Elu Galap, and I excuse my pronunciation, and left a crater 60 metres deep. So, you know, that's just one of the first hydrogen bomb tests that was done by the US. I mean, how was the British, um, I guess, scale of their bombs of a similar type? The British tests weren't quite as large as the American ones. The largest American test was 15 megatons, which is an enormous weapon. The Soviet Union also conducted even bigger tests. But the British were very eager to, to... achieve weapons in the megaton range, um, basically so they could flatten the Soviet cities with one bomb. That was the threat at the time. Um, And so the first three tests on Malden Island didn't quite reach that range. Um, And so they relocated the testing to Christmas Island. But on Christmas Island, there was a military base established for this testing program. As you say, this was a huge logistic exercise. They literally had to bring supplies, troops, equipment from halfway around the world um, to the Central Pacific. Um, And so a whole naval task force was deployed and the British looked to support from regional countries, obviously from Australia. Um, The testing at Maralinga developed atomic triggers that were used in this later H-bomb testing. Um, New Zealand was asked to send naval frigates and so two New Zealand ships uh, with over 550 sailors participated in the tests as part of the British Naval Task Force. Canada too, another Commonwealth country, was involved. The Canadians set up a nuclear reactor that produced uh, plutonium, tritium and other nuclear materials that were used by the British. Indeed, Australia provided uranium from Mary Kathleen in Queensland for the British nuclear program. Um, And Canada also supplied access to their air bases um, where the bomb literally had to be flown from England to the test site. And so they stopped off in Canada and the United States, Hawaii on the way through to the Central Pacific. So this was very much a Commonwealth effort. Australia, New Zealand, uh, um, Canada were involved in supporting the British effort um, as part of the Anglosphere in those days. Obviously, other British colonies and uh, former parts of the British Empire, like India, were deeply opposed to this. And uh, um, there's this sort of tension where we see the Anglosphere nations supporting the British nuclear program, but many other former British colonies, like India, were beginning to speak out against the threat of nuclear weapons by all the superpowers, um, United States, Russia and uh, Britain. Mm. And I want to talk about um, Australia's support of this because uh, Robert Menzies was our Prime Minister at the time, a Liberal Prime Minister, and um, in terms of the atmospheric testing program in Australia, it was conducted with the agreement and support of Menzies without initially getting approval from Cabinet. So that's quite a controversial element, isn't it? It's very much a feature of this nuclear period, the the secrecy Mm. involved in it. I mean, Clement Attlee, the British Prime Minister, began uh, the, the made the decision to begin the bomb in 1946, and they spent £100 million before they informed Parliament that Britain was developing its own nuclear weapons. It was the same within Australia. Menzies and his then Minister, Supply, Minister for Supply, a guy called Howard Beale, um, secretly decided, without full Cabinet approval, to allow the testing to go ahead in Australia. 
and Howard Beale was very much an enthusiastic supporter of the the weapons program. He said at the time, England has the bomb and the know-how, we have the open spaces, much technical skill and great willingness to help the motherland. So at this time, you know, those colonial ties with Britain were still strong. Obviously, the, the... you know, the vast open spaces were Aboriginal land, the Anungu people of, uh, of uh, South Australia. Um, Maralinga Juricha land was used uh, for the atomic testing uh, in Australia and also for the testing of nuclear components, even after the atmospheric nuclear tests. Right up until 1963, the British con- conducted a series of experiments doing things like burning plutonium to see what would happen, for example, if a plane crashed with a nuclear bomb on board. And those nuclear tests did a lot of damage that are still there contaminating areas with plutonium, americium, other nuclear materials to this very day. It's a, a sacrifice zone created in, uh, on Aboriginal land in South Australia. And this is the problem that Indigenous communities, neighbouring communities, bore the brunt of this testing program. The numbers of Indigenous people were small, but um, they were still there. And it was only with a Royal Commission in 1985 that a lot of the information came out about how Aboriginal people had been mistreated. Yes, some of them had been moved and then others had still remained in that area where the testing was being conducted. And there was a cynicism about this at the time, a casual racism towards so-called primitive peoples. In researching my book, Grappling with the Bomb, I looked into the British Colonial Office archives and found a lot of... um, you know, information, archival research from the British military, they knew before the tests that there were hazards from ionising radiation. They set up uh, elaborate safety measures on paper, but in reality these were often uh, avoided and shortcuts were taken. Um, And, uh, for example, we found a document from 1956 from the commander of the operation, uh, Air Vice Marshal Wilfred Alton, who acknowledged that there was a danger area and that uh, so-called primitive peoples within the danger area, those that didn't wash or wear clothes, according to him, um, were at greater risks than the military personnel who came. Mm. Indeed, they knew that primitive peoples, so-called, faced 16 times the accepted level set by uh, medical authorities at the time. So there was knowledge that people were at risk, and yet the tests went ahead. And that was particularly the case with the the grapple tests. Mm. The first three didn't reach the level that they wanted and so instead of sailing a task force from Christmas Island 600-odd miles south to Malden to do the tests, they simply relocated them to the end of Christmas Island where thousands of British, New Zealand, Fijian military personnel were based. Exactly. And so... um you know, cutting corners and saving time uh, by relocating and, and that pressure that you mentioned um, that they were under to get this done before there was a ban, any kind of ban on the testing that they were doing, um, was what really kind of brought them to this point, the second part of these tests in the Pacific Um Can you talk a bit about those tests and the people that were involved there? Because as you said, it wasn't just British people. It was New Zealanders who had been called upon um, on their frigates to join, as well as uh, Fijians who were part of um, the military and other troops there who were potentially, um, some of them, not even aware that they were going to be involved in um, bomb tests until right before In the book, um, I interview a lot of the survivors. Um, 
Um, these are people now in their 80s uh, because the tests were conducted 60 years ago. They were often young men, and they were men mostly, um, who were there. There were three or 4,000 British troops on the island at any one time, but my book focuses on the experience of people from the Southern Hemisphere. So New Zealand sailors aboard the frigates Bukaki and Rotuiti um, who were there. There were 276 Fijian participants. Fiji, as I mentioned, was a British colony at that time and so people were part of the British Army through the Fiji military forces or the what was called the Fiji Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve. So the Fijian soldiers and sailors were serving on the island. And there were also some Gilbertese, some Micronesian islanders, living on Christmas Island at the time. There'd been a plantation there since the early part of the 20th century and there were dozens of uh, families located there who uh, were plantation workers, uh, women and children included. Um, When the military operation began, the plantation was shut down and uh, many of the Gilbertese men were working as labourers to support um, the British uh, with difficult, dirty tasks that um, others didn't want to do. So you had that mixture of British, Fijian, New Zealander, um, Ikitabas, Gilbertese uh, people on the island. And in the book, I, I spent a lot of time both looking at the archives to find out what it meant for them, but also just talking to people and getting their stories. And it's part of history that's really been written out of history. Mm. These the young Fijians, for example, were told when they came home not to talk about it under official secrets acts. These were young guys, 18, 19, 20. It was often the first job they'd ever had, often the first time certainly they'd travelled out of Fiji. Um, They were told that they were going for training exercises aboard a British warship, but no-one told them before they went that they were going to participate in a nuclear weapons program. And it was only when they were on Christmas Island that they were briefed that next week there'll be an H-bomb going off. And um, as I interviewed them, I found some of them were a bit vague on dates and details, but they remembered vividly, with, as if it was yesterday, the image of this massive bomb explosion. Um, they were lined up uh, either ashore or on the decks of the Naval Task Force, backs to the blast, hands covering their eyes uh, because of the flash of the, the detonation. And then as the bomb exploded, as the mushroom cloud rose over the sky, they turned around to watch this. Um, and... Uh, The British said it was safe, of course, that the tests were conducted in the air, far enough away from the the troops that they wouldn't be facing hazards. But we know today that that's incorrect and that there were serious um, hazards of ionising radiation for these participants. Yes, and one of the um, concerns was the radioactive effects um, on those people Affected the Brits, the um, New Zealanders and the Fijians. And in some of the tests, there was a great deal of, um, I guess, protective clothing. And in others, there wasn't, particularly the ones after, later on. Um, they didn't have full body clothing and they were quite exposed, um, their skin being exposed to the blast that occurred. You know, over time, the British got more lackadaisical with safety measures For example, in the early tests in Australia, uh, people were issued with a film badge, just a bit like an X-ray exposes. Um, You know, you can see how much radiation is coming on a a piece of film. And about 90% of participants in the early days in Australia were given film badges. 
but by the time of Operation Grapple in 1957-58, only about 20% of participants were given those badges, and even then, those badges weren't developed. All the New Zealand badges were collected and sent back to England and then thrown away without ever being tested. So there's no record of the level of exposure for the New Zealand sailors. Mm. Um, There were regulations to say, for example, that you shouldn't eat fish, Um, that might have been contaminated by the fallout from these massive uh, mushroom clouds. Um, And yet we have photos and oral testimony from the Fijians, from the Gilbertese workers, about how they caught fish and ate them because Pacific Islanders, of course, we ate crabs and fish and so on. And there's a lot of stories about how the Scottish troops used to buy the beer and the Fijians would go fishing and they'd have beach parties. These were young guys in the middle of paradise, so it appeared. Mm. And being told by the British officers not to eat the fish, well, they did. Um, So there were pathways for people to ingest um, radioactive isotopes that could later affect their health. Uh, Particularly the pilots had the worst of it after each uh, detonation Um, Canberra bombers were sent to fly through the mushroom cloud to gather samples of radioactivity and that could help determine the yield, the the massive power of the the explosion. And the pilots um, had the worst casualty rates um, from 76 Squadron. Many people were, were seriously exposed to very high levels of radiation and a number died. Um, from leukaemia, cancer and other other illnesses later on. So the British suggestion that, oh, we had very good safety standards wasn't played out in reality. Um, and, uh, you know, often Fijian and, uh, and Gilbertese workers were given some of the, the worst jobs. Um, in the book I interview a Fijian sailor, Paul Arpoi, and one of the jobs he was given was to dump drums of contaminated uh, materials and clothes and other things into the ocean. Um, He only discovered this when uh, he was sitting on the drum and a British uh, sergeant major knocked him off the drum, said, don't sit on that, you'll ruin your wedding tackle, um, (laughs) so to speak. He was, um, you know, he was being told to take these out in a small boat and chuck them over the side into the ocean. So these sort of stories are really important to document Mm. because the British continue to this day to say that people weren't exposed, beyond the pilots really, to hazardous levels of of radiation. But we know that's not true. Mm, Exactly. And uh, you do quote one of the the assistant uh, trials planning officers from the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment, and that was a British organisation. And uh, the man was Ernest Cox, who was flown in by helicopter from HMS Warrior to Malden Island after the test, one of the tests, to retrieve scientific instruments. And you say that he soon noted that everything was not quite right. Quote, I said to my army helper, what the hell is wrong and what the hell are we doing here? We both had a strange feeling. We noticed no flies, no movement of lizards and no booby birds. We found several burnt and dead birds. And in the distance, we heard one of the three wild pigs, but we didn't dare approach too close to it. It was badly burnt and was going around in circles blind. I said, this bloody place is contaminated and what the hell are we doing here? I mean, it sounds apocalyptic. Well, these are incredibly powerful weapons and, and even though many of the tests were conducted in the atmosphere, in you know, up in the air rather than on ground mm-hmm. as a way of reducing radioactive fallout, from that sort of testimony, it's clear that there were hotspots of radioactivity on Molden Island. That was after the second test. 
And we know uh, this, um, you know, days after being taken back to the British Naval Task Force, um, Cox had uh, tests and he had blisters, radiation burns all over his legs and was found to have a very high level of exposure. The story that really came out about this was after this second test, um, the Orange Herald test in um, June 1957, a high chief from Fiji was there visiting the Fijian sailors and he went on shore. This was a man named Ratu Panayanganalao. Nganalao was a very high chief in Fiji and um, he uh, later became the Governor-General and then President of Fiji in the 1980s. So a very distinguished uh, uh, figure. And he um, went ashore on Malden Island, flown in by helicopter like the British soldier just described, and um, he was a big man, over six foot five, and so they didn't have boots big enough for him. So he went sort of without um, onto the island. Now, later in life, he came down with significant health problems. Um, uh, he died of leukaemia um, in an American military hospital. Um, he had Guillain-Barre disease, which is a Barre disease, which is a um, autoimmune disease. And his two younger sons both born after um, uh, the 1957 test, um, didn't have children. And so his older uh, children had fa- all had large families. His two younger sons uh, were both incapable of having children. So it's a story that hadn't really been told very much publicly. Uh, you know, this is the Governor-General, um, the Queen's representative, indeed knighted by Queen Elizabeth uh, for his service to the British Empire. And yet his family... Um, provided interviews for the book, provided photos and so on, because they wanted their father's story told. They can't, of course, prove conclusively that um, uh, his presence on Christmas Island um, caused his later illness, and that's one of the big problems. Um, um, Many of the health problems, cancers and the like, that come can be caused by exposure to uh, radiation but can also be caused by a range of other things and in fact many people get cancer from smoking from a whole range of things and so the issue of causation has been a real problem for people to prove that their service on Christmas Island actually caused illness sometimes years even decades later in life Um, but uh, um, Rajasapanaya's family uh, certainly believed that uh, uh, his illness was linked to his time uh, on Christmas Island. Yes, and I want to talk about um, how the British were trying to manage some of the interests and stakeholders and also protesters at the time because um, there was uh, a man who was a businessman um, who had many, I guess, business interests in the Pacific Islands around this area and he was seeking assurances from the British government that these tests would not harm his business um, because he had... had a lot of harm and um, lost a lot of money during World War II to his crops when he had to burn them. Um, This is something which I found particularly interesting because it affected the danger zone and how they were mapping out where they said um, there was a danger zone and where it needed to exclude boats, for example, um, other people and where other people needed to be beyond this danger zone. The man you're talking about is James Burns, who was the the boss of uh, Burns Philpen Co. This was a large Australian training house that was involved in copra plantations, in tourism, uh, in a whole range of investments across the Pacific. And Burns was one of the the major businessmen um, uh, from Australia at the time operating in the Pacific. 
um, we mentioned there was a plantation on Christmas Island, but there were a range of plantations owned by Burns Philpin Company on neighbouring islands, on uh, Jarvis, Washington, Fanning and, and others. Um, these were inhabited islands, therefore, um, just some hundreds of miles away from Christmas Island and Molden Island where the tests were conducted. The British did declare a danger area to warn off planes and shipping, um, but we found in the archives, uh, a colleague Wadden Nasi uh, was the first to notice this, um, that they redrew the danger area to basically exclude all the inhabited islands where Burnsville plantations were located and where there were um, local plantation workers. Um, so uh, we found in the archives, and it's in pub- republished from the Colonial Office archives in the book, a map, uh, instead of drawing a neat 400-mile circle around uh, Christmas Island and Molden Island as a, an estimate of the test zone, um, the danger area for the test, they instead drew square lines rather than circles, and the squares just happened to cut out all the inhabited islands in the area. And this allowed Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, to stand up in Parliament and say that there were no inhabited islands within the danger zone. And the reason for that was they'd literally drawn the danger zone. You can see the pencil marks on the map in the, in the reproduction in the book. Um, they'd redrawn the danger zone to exclude mm. places where there were um, plantation workers. And, and Burns, um, James Burns was quite angry about what he called hydrogen bomb antics because he'd seen what had happened in South Australia and he was anxious that he would um, face loss for his business. He wasn't particularly concerned about the plantation workers, but he was worried about the potential damage to his business. And um, so we think of protesters against nuclear weapons um, Mm -hmm. coming from Greenpeace in, in future times and so on. But at the time, there was pretty widespread opposition to this. And... um, one of the things that I've, I've tried to do in the book is capture a range of people, both a British pacifist named Harold Steele who tried to sail a boat into the region, Burns himself, um, but also a lot of Indigenous protest. Mm. You know, going right back to the beginning of the nuclear age, Pacific Islanders had an ambivalence to this. It was an opportunity to participate for the soldiers, as I mentioned, who went. It was a great adventure in some ways to travel, uh, to see the world. Certainly politicians like Robert Menzies used it to reinforce their loyalty to empire um, by supporting the tests. But there was also widespread opposition from Indigenous peoples across the Pacific. And um, from the archives, we found all sorts of examples of petitions, for example, by Marshall Islanders against the US nuclear tests, protesting to the um, UN Trusteeship Council, Western Samoa petitioned the UN Trusteeship Council to halt the operations. They were in New Zealand territory at the time um, and were very concerned. Um, they lost by nine to one. Only Russia supported their protest. Mm. New Zealand voted together with the British and the Americans against the Samoan people at the Trusteeship Council. Uh, in the Cook Islands, the Rarotonga Island Council, these are the Ariki, the customary chiefs of the Cooks, protested. In Fiji, there were newspaper editorials. Um, one Indo-Fijian newspaper said, nations engaged in testing these bombs in the Pacific should realise the value of the lives of people settled in this part of the world. They too are human beings, not guinea pigs. So it wasn't just the um, protests from peace movements around the Pacific Rim, people in the Pacific were saying, we don't want to be guinea pigs mm. as the Western allies develop their nuclear weapons. 
And this is the contrast I, I had in the article about the Commonwealth secret bomb, that you had Anglosphere leaders from Australia, New Zealand, Canada supporting the British nuclear weapons program, but people in the colonies at the time actively speaking out against this program and really calling for an end to atmospheric nuclear testing, something that occurred in 1963 after the Americans and the, the Russians had done enough testing. They signed the Partial Test Ban Treaty, which Britain reluctantly joined, um, but they got the bomb by then. Exactly. So really what you're saying is these protest movements were happening at the grassroots in these um, Pacific Island communities well before even some of the uh, major protest groups we know today that are involved in anti-nuclear movements. And I think that's one of the things that, that is a central theme of the book, that Pacific Islanders were not simply victims in all this, that they were active participants as I say, some were soldiers and sailors that uh, were involved in working as labourers in the whole operation and others were actively campaigning. I, I interviewed many years ago a woman named Marie-Therese Danielson. She and her husband, Bengt, wrote a famous book called Mururoa Monamua, published in the mid-70s, which spoke out against French nuclear testing. It was one of the earliest public statements. Um, but when I interviewed Marie-Therese, I said, how did you get interested in this? And she said... Back in 1950, we were anthropologists in the Tuamotu Archipelago, one of the five archipelagos that make up French Polynesia, the French colony in the Pacific. And one day the copra boat arrived and this guy jumped off uh, and wanted people to sign a petition against nuclear weapons. It was 1950. There was a man named Puvana Opa, who's a famous Tahitian independence leader. At the time, he was a church leader, a deacon in the church. He'd seen uh, in the first service in the First World War and been involved with the Americans during the Second World War. As he heard of nuclear weapons, he decided that nothing should, um, that, that people shouldn't uh, uh, be developing these weapons. And so he wanted to collect signatures for what was called the Stockholm Peace Appeal. This was an, an agreement put out uh, calling for the abolition of nuclear weapons, ban on nuclear testing. Over 32 million people signed it in the 1950s. And here was this guy going round on a copper boat collecting signatures in the outer atolls. So Murray Therese and her husband, Bengt, were anthropologists in the middle of the nowhere studying native moors on this isolated island mm. and some guys collecting signatures against nuclear weapons. 25 years later, they write a book that makes them famous for their opposition. But it was this Polynesian activist who inspired them. I think that's really important when we think today about the struggles around climate change. The same process is happening. You know, a lot of the rhetoric that comes out is, oh, we have to help these poor Pacific Islanders, mm. you know, they're threatened by sea level rise. Yet Pacific communities, Pacific governments are very active in mm. the global negotiations on climate change. They're not sitting back and saying, let's just wait and go glug, glug, glug. In fact... They've you know, been leading the charge. They're really. leading the charge. They're yeah. calling on Australia to shut down its coal industry. They're calling for more climate finance, uh, for greater action on adaptation and mitigation, to use the jargon. Mm -hmm. And I think we see the same thing in the nuclear era, that people weren't simply victims sitting there, although they bore the brunt, Indigenous people bore the brunt of nuclear testing, but they were actively protesting it right from the beginning of the nuclear age. And I think that's something for Australians to think about that our near neighbours are not victims in all of these issues around environmental damage, around nuclear testing, around climate change. They have their own positions, their own perspectives and their own activism 
that maybe we should be working alongside and supporting. Exactly. And that's a good point that many of the people listening may know Kiribati because um, they are hugely under threat from climate change by sea level rises and have already lost land um, from their islands due to the sea enveloping parts of the outer parts of their island. So, I mean, they are really at the front line in terms of dealing firsthand with the impacts of climate change and you know these kind of low level lying islands not just Kiribati but other islands around the Pacific are probably one of the greatest um, areas at threat from climate change at the moment. And people make the connection between the the environmental and social and economic impacts of climate change Mm. and the past era of nuclear testing. Nuclear testing went on for 50 years in the Pacific and people are living with the consequences today and many Pacific Islanders draw the analogy saying the responsibility lies with Northern Hemisphere powers largely, with Europeans, with the Americans, increasingly with the Chinese and Indians. Um, Yet we, the smallest country in the world, are bearing the brunt of the actions of other major powers as they play their geopolitical games. Mm. And you see that today with Donald Trump threatening fire and fury on the people of Korea, Kim Jong-un threatening to launch missiles uh, to explode a hydrogen bomb above the Pacific. Well, the Americans did that in 1962, um, firing missiles from Johnston Atoll. The electromagnetic pulse blacked out the lights of Honolulu. So the Americans have already done it. Now the North Koreans are following in their footstep Mm. and peoples in the Pacific are saying enough is enough. And so today many Pacific countries have signed the new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, a global treaty adopted in July last year, now signed by uh, nearly 60 countries, uh, just ratified last week by Palau, Pacific Mm. Island country, uh, the first to ratify it, um, with many more to come. Um, These are our neighbours saying enough is enough. We have to move towards abolition of nuclear weapons, not just uh, arms control, not just uh, minimising this. Yes, and notable that Australia hasn't signed on to this and doesn't support it. Indeed, we actively oppose the negotiations, whereas our near neighbours, not just Pacific countries, but New Zealand, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, Philippines have all signed this treaty, Mm. are all moving towards ratification. Um, You know, we're very much isolated and... You know, we're following Donald Trump uh, at a time uh, that is quite scary uh, where, um, you know, the threat to uh, breach the Iran nuclear weapons uh, agreement, uh, the the potential for the North Korean negotiations to go down the tube. Um, We live in difficult times and that's why you're seeing non-nuclear states saying we need to take action. We can't wait for the nuclear weapons powers, Israel, the United States, Russia, China to act we have a responsibility and this new treaty has got momentum from countries that are not involved in nuclear weapon systems saying enough is enough and that's where our neighbours like New Zealand are moving pretty rapidly to ratify the treaty. Um, We stand separate from our Pacific Island Forum partners on this question. Mm. I'm talking with Nick McClellan, who is the author of a book, Grappling with the Bomb, Britain's Pacific H-Bomb Tests. And we've been talking about Operation Grapple, which is a British operation in the Pacific um, testing hydrogen bombs. And Nick, I want to finish our conversation by talking about the fallout and the environmental and health implications that um, still exist today from these tests. And uh, we know that there were many measurements 
measurement stations around Australia, but also around the Pacific to try and test and gauge what kind of um, impacts these were ha- these tests were having, what kind of, um, you know, uh, I guess toxic waste was being spread out into the air through the wind and dispersed across the ocean, but also onto land. I mean, first up environmentally, what are the current um impacts that exist that are still affecting islanders and australians well some of the radioactive isotopes are long lasting they talk about a half-life which is the time that half of the radioactive material will decay some isotopes are are very fast decaying and so they may disappear within days uh, weeks but others are long lasting and so plutonium last 24,400 years as a half-life. So essentially it's with us forever. Um, so the plutonium contamination in the deserts of South Australia uh, is, a, is a hazard really for time onwards, um, well beyond human uh, reckoning. Um, and that's true in the Marshall Islands, the northern atolls, particularly Rongelap, Bikini and Iwitok are severely contaminated um, and many people have been unable to return to their home islands. They were relocated during the testing program in the late 1940s, 1950s and um, I've interviewed people in the book who are still living in Majro, the capital, mm-hmm. unable to return to their home on Rongelap, for example, uh, where they were relocated after 1954. It's the same at Mururoa and Fungotofa. The French atolls are severely contaminated with plutonium um, and other radioactive isotopes. So these also spread, however, over vast distances. Um, in the book, we talk a lot about strontium-90, which is a, a byproduct of these nuclear tests. And in the 1950s, there was a lot of concern that strontium was being carried literally around the world by high-level winds in the stratosphere and upper atmosphere, And um, at the time, the Western Allies did a lot of studies about how much strontium was accumulating in people's bones and teeth and so on. And there was this uh, rather obscene program called Project Sunshine, don't you love the name, Mm. where the Americans and British uh, nuclear authorities wanted to sample um, body parts, uh, bones, teeth and so on to determine how much strontium was being taken in because of American, Russian, British nuclear testing. And so in 19 countries around the world, they started to collect samples, and this is bones and teeth. They often used dead children, um, um, and this was often without informed consent from the parents, um, children that had died in hospital. Medical scientists would take samples. uh, And in Australia, we're not small numbers. We're talking about uh, records we found... uh, 21,000 samples were taken in Australia and the then Territory of Papua New Guinea and the bones incinerated, sent to England for testing about how much strontium-90 was building up in the blood. So this was literally like body snatching Um, and there have been inquiries in recent years about the lack of ethics from the medical and scientific personnel involved in this program, which began with good intentions but spilled over to to the stage where, you know, uh, completely unethical behaviour as uh, scientists were studying this. There's another project called Project 4.1 where American scientists looked at the people um, in the northern part of the Marshall Islands who'd been very badly irradiated by the Bravo test, people from Rongelap and uh, Eniwitok and other atolls. And uh, they were tests conducted over decades um, as a human study group 
basically uh, the Russians did the same thing and I'm sure that today uh, other samples are being taken from people in, in other nuclear countries. Um, mm. All of this governed by nuclear secrecy without the normal accountability that scientists, medical doctors should have to their peers uh, for these sorts of health studies. Um, the nuclear state is a secret state and um, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to really break through some of the silence about these things to show that even with good intentions, um, Indigenous people, service personnel, bore the brunt of this racist behaviour during the 1950s. Mm. And do we know the outcome of those strontium-90 tests? Well, a lot of the documents are still hidden. Um, we, For example, um, there was an operation called Operation Aconite, where Royal Air Force planes, British planes, flew out of Darwin to collect samples from the uh, American tests in the Marshall Islands. I found references to it and went looking for the documents, but they're still closed to public scrutiny in the UK National Archives. Mm. I've got the file numbers, there's three files, but uh, can't get access to them because of national security uh, reasons. And uh, there's a lot of stuff about radiation data um, from the, the grapple tests that's still not available. And this has been a problem for the British New Zealand Fijian veterans as they've taken this issue to court and failed before the British courts because they can't get access to all the documents they need to prove the hazards that they were exposed to. And uh, this is an ongoing struggle. Even mm. 60 years after the tests, um, British, New Zealand, uh, Fijians are still campaigning for compensation from the UK government, which refuses to this day to have a general compensation scheme for its nuclear survivors. Mm, the strong denial of the, of the huge impacts that would have occurred. Well, we're entering a new nuclear age. Mm. Um, we're having debates about this, about North Korea, about Iran, about America, about Russia, today modernising their nuclear arsenals. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was to say we haven't cleaned up the legacies from 60 years ago. There are still people living with the health and environmental consequences of past nuclear testing. And you want to modernise nuclear weapons? I think it's really important that we look at our past to understand the present – and to understand, just as there was resistance in the past to nuclear testing, so there are countries campaigning for the treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons, saying enough is enough today. Sadly, Australia hasn't joined its neighbours to support this treaty, but we should. And uh, with an election coming up in the next year, this is maybe an issue that Australians should be asking their political parties, what's your position on the treaty? Mm, that's a really great point. Nick, um, that's where we're going to have to end this uh, interview. It's been fascinating speaking with you about this and uh, I really commend you on all the research you've been doing and uh, and talking about this with us. Nick is a journalist and researcher in the Pacific Islands and Australia and he's a correspondent for the Inside Business Magazine, oh, sorry, Islands Business Magazine, uh, which is based in Fiji and uh, you can read... Nick McClellan's book, which is we've been discussing, Grappling with the Bomb, Britain's Pacific H-Bomb Tests um, on the ANU uh, Books Publications website. And you can also read that article that you have written in Inside Story called The Commonwealth's Secret Bomb. Nick McClellan, thanks for joining me. Amy, thanks very much for having me. And uh, as I mentioned, that was Nick McClellan, a researcher and journalist um, who has done such great work on uh, the British 
nuclear testing uh, in the Pacific Islands called Operation Grapple. And it's a fascinating read and um, also a harrowing read, but important to face up to the consequences of uh, Australia's actions as well as those in the Commonwealth and Britain. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.